following is brought to you by Canyon Ridge Church in Tacoma. For additional podcasts or information on service times and upcoming events, please visit us online at www.explorecrc.com. And it's yet another chance where we will take God's word and we will look at what it says and see how that applies to real life. So yes, we're going to focus our context primarily on parenting, and we'll use a lot of those types of examples, but we're also confident that those with ears to hear will learn more about who they are in Christ, and they will learn more about how they can experience and respond to God's love. They will learn more about how to live out faith in everyday real life, and they will learn more about how to become the leaders that God has called them to be in a variety of places in life as they live out their purpose and impact the world around them. So sound good? All right. Well, let's, uh, let's pray one more time, and we'll get into it. Father God, thank you for being here with us, and God, thank you that you are here to walk through this life with us and be everything we need. Lord, may we see that today as we look at your word. May we see that you are reaching out to us and wanting to connect with us, wanting to speak into our lives and be who we need to follow as we move ahead. Open our hearts today, Lord. Help us to receive from you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In many ways, he was one of the greatest kings history had ever seen. His wealth was incredible. His influence stretched far and wide. His knowledge and insight unmatched. People literally traveled from faraway lands just to listen to him. His building projects, legendary. His armies, probably kind of bored actually, because unlike most kings, his long reign of 40 years saw a remarkably peaceful time. Oh, and his, his writings, nothing short of divine. Yeah, we can say that even here in church because the man literally got to write down some of what we know today as God's holy word. King Solomon. King Solomon had a resume that none of us could compete with. His father was King David, the giant slayer, <laughs> the one who captured and built up the city of Jerusalem and made it Israel's capital city, the one who wrote so many of the Psalms, the one who despite his failings, because David had failings, but despite those failings was able to return so earnestly back to God that even today he can be remembered not so much for his failings, but remembered as a man after God's own heart. Talk about a great start. Solomon was born into privilege. He was born into the palace, born to a true leader chosen by God. And then the very first story we get to hear about Solomon after the kingdom of Israel is firmly established in his rule is about God appearing to Solomon in a dream and just saying to him, Solomon, what do you want? Ask and I will give it to you. We don't even know why this happens. God just shows up and asks him, what do you want? That's a great deal. And Solomon's response to that, to that offer is a very good one. Perhaps you know the story. In a word, Solomon asks for 
wisdom. And God is so pleased that Solomon asked for something so, so valuable instead of just riches or the defeat or death of his enemies that God tells Solomon, all right, you're getting all of the above. And so from then on, the scriptures are very clear in showing us how God made good on that promise. It tells us of the 25 tons of gold that Solomon received every year in tribute. It tells us of his 1,400 chariots and his 12,000 horses. It tells us of the fleet of trading ships that he built to bring him goods and services from around the world. It tells us how in Solomon's day, silver was as common in Jerusalem as stone. It tells us in great detail about the temple, the marvelous temple that Solomon built and dedicated to the Lord. And it tells us of the large and lavish palace that he built for himself. It tells us about how he wrote 1,005 songs and around 3,000 proverbs. And the Bible flat out tells us how Solomon compared. It says he became richer and wiser than any king on earth. The man had it all. And you may not realize it, but his most influential book was written out of Solomon's desire to be a great parent. Today we call it the book of Proverbs, and it's this incredible collection of wisdom all gathered together in one place. And I'll just say, you, you won't find a better one, not even 3,000 years later, when the wisest man who ever lived writes down the very best that God has given him, it stands the test of time. And it's in this book that we first learned that pride comes before the fall and that as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another and that a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. It's in this book that we are taught that a good name is more desirable than great riches and that if we walk with the wise, we will become wise. And Solomon's book contains teaching after teaching after teaching on nearly every topic you might need in life. God, money, marriage, work, leisure, learning, character, leading, listening, success, failure. It's amazing. I mean, Solomon was literally writing about emotional intelligence 3,000 years before that was a thing. But why did he write this book? Let's let him answer that question. Read with me from Proverbs chapter 1. The book starts out this way. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. Then what is this collection for? He says, for gaining wisdom, for instruction, for understanding words of insight, for receiving instruction in prudent behavior, doing what is right and just and fair, for giving prudence to those who are simple, knowledge and discretion to the young. Let the wise listen and add to their learning. Let the discerning get guidance for understanding proverbs and parables, the sayings and riddles of the wise. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Why did he write this book? To share the gift that he had received. To teach about what is good and right and wise and smart to point people to follow God's way instead of foolishness. This gift, this, this knowledge had to be passed on, right? But passed on to whom? Read on. 
verse 8, listen, my son, to your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's instruction, your mother's teaching. Two verses later, my son, if sinful men entice you, do not give in to them. Five verses later, my son, do not go along with them. First words in the next chapter, my son. We read this phrase three more times in the third chapter, three more times in the fourth chapter, three more times in the fifth chapter, and on and on. And when we start to read more than just one proverb at a time, we see the why. This is a father desperately trying to pass on what he's learned to his son. Now, Solomon had likely had far more than just one son. Sometimes he even does say, my sons. But when he narrows it down to just one, it's likely that he's thinking about Rehoboam, the son who would eventually take over the throne. Please, son, please learn something from your father. Trust me, I have taught kings and queens. I have amazed scholars and wise men. But they're not the ones I'm primarily writing this book for. It's for you, my son. Will you please let me teach you? Have you been there? (laughs) I mean, isn't that just like the parenting dynamic? You can be the biggest deal in the world, but your kids couldn't care less. You can go to work and and maybe at your work, you're the boss, you know, and everyone there is is trying to impress you. Uh, Everyone there follows your instructions. Everyone goes the extra mile for you, but you go home and you can hardly get your kids to do the dishes. Parenting is a humbling thing. In some ways, you know, maybe, maybe it just kind of levels the playing field for us all. You can have, you know, all the resources in the world, all the advantages, the smarts, and even the blessing of God on your side. I mean, you could be just like King Solomon, for goodness sakes. And leading someone else into the best life that God has for them, that is still a monumental challenge. It's some of the most important work that you will ever have the chance to do But how can we truly do it well? How can we lead our children well? How can we be sure we will succeed in this area even where great men and great women have failed? Those are tough questions. And we're honestly going to take six weeks to try to answer them, not just today as we look at God's Word together. But for today, I want us to start at the beginning. And and really, perhaps a better way to think about it is to say that today, we need to look at what happens even before the beginning. Step zero. Pastor Josh and I were actually talking about this series about a week and a half ago, and, and we had a really good discussion about how to approach the topic, and specifically, how to start it off. I mean, a logical thought had occurred to both of us. Let's start with step one. Before we look at how to be a great parent, let's talk about what that even means. Let's talk about the ultimate goal of what great parenting is. Know where you're going first and then start going there, right? Makes sense. But after we discussed it a little bit more, we were convinced that in those messages, in these messages about parenting, messages about how we could possibly lead another person into something good, there's really something fundamental that comes before we ever even set our eyes on a goal or on a course to be a great parent. Before we even try to do something good for our children, there's a very important reality 
we all need to face. Parenting is far more about who we are than it is about what we teach. Great parenting is far more about who we are than it is about what we teach or the rules that we set up or the standards that we set. Parents, leaders of others, who are you? What does your life look like? Before we even get to setting goals about what we want to teach or how we want to shape our kids' environments, how we want to do parenting, we need to answer these questions. Because here's the biggest tragedy about the man who wrote Scripture to guide his child. Solomon failed as a parent. Solomon failed as a leader. The wisest man who ever lived, the richest king of his day, a man blessed by God's hand, goes down in biblical history ultimately as a failure. After all the bragging that is done about Solomon, heck, there's even bragging about Solomon in the Bible. After all of it, 1 Kings chapter 11 wraps up his story. And it says, he was great, but he married a thousand women from every nation around in direct contradiction to God's command. But those wives and concubines led him to worship numerous false gods. But he even set up places of worship for so many false gods that the scriptures don't even list them all. It just lists a few high places he set up and said he set up this for this God and this for this God and this for this God. And then it says, and he did the same for all of his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their God. The Bible continues and says this, the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, since this is your attitude and you have not kept my covenants and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of your father, David, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. And if you read on, you will find out that is exactly what God does. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, is supposed to continue the line. He's supposed to inherit the richest kingdom on earth. But when he's been king for only three days, he loses it. He loses 10 out of the 12 tribes of Israel, and they never come back. Folks, Solomon failed as a king, as a leader, and as a parent. And I know, I know we could all look at that and go, well, no, he did some good things and some bad things. I mean, he, he, he wrote three books of the Bible, for goodness sakes. He did so much good for Israel. He built the temple. Why you got to go and call him a failure? And my answer to you is because God did. Solomon got fired from the position where he did all those things. 
all of those merits were not good enough for him to slide by, God said, no, you're out of there. Why? Not because he couldn't lead and get stuff done and be a king. Not because Proverbs didn't receive enough rave reviews. No, Solomon was gifted. He was talented. He was knowledgeable. He wasn't fired because he lacked skill. He was fired because he didn't live by the very wisdom that he taught. He wrote the finest of truths, urging people to fear the Lord and to trust in Him with all their hearts. And then we see by the end, he has built more worship sites for foreign gods than he ever did for the one true God. He wrote God-breathed words about how precious marriage is and how important it is to be cherished. That's pretty tough to do when a thousand women call you their own. In later scriptures, we also find that he spent large chunks of his time and his resources chasing meaningless pleasures over and over again in a pointless effort to satisfy his soul. And eventually, God has had enough. Solomon has become the ultimate do as I say, not as I do parent and leader. And so God fires him. He tears the kingdom from his family. Solomon failed as a parent because he didn't model what he wanted his children to become. Let me say that again. Solomon failed as a parent because he didn't model what he wanted his children to become. Oh, he taught them beautifully. He spoke some amazing words to them, probably better than you or I would ever come up with. But he didn't live how they should live. He taught what was right but he lived what was wrong. You see, there's a pattern of, uh, in Scripture of teaching and modeling going together. I mean, if we want to know what perfect parenting looks like, no problem. Just ask a perfect parent, right? <laughs> Easy. And let me just save you some time. The only perfect parent you will ever find is our Heavenly Father, God Himself. I mean, he's our creator no matter what, but he becomes our father when we accept who he is and choose to give our lives over to him. Amen. That's when we become family. The Bible calls it adoption. So God's not parenting the whole world out there, but he parents his people, those who have been adopted into his family. And so how does a perfect parent do the job? Well, he definitely believes in teaching. He does, even in setting down the rules, believe it or not. Maybe you've noticed, but the Bible's not a small book. Most of us here probably haven't even read every single page that's in that book. But our perfect parent, parent thought that passing along knowledge, passing along history, passing along instruction and stories, passing along do's and don'ts was absolutely important. Just like we saw Solomon saying, I've got to pass this instruction along to my children. We see that throughout God's word, throughout the Bible. God wants to pass his instruction along to his children. In God's leadership style, in his parenting style, he absolutely values teaching, probably more than most of us value learning from that teaching, to be quite honest. But there's a parallel track that's always running right next to his teaching. Because God is constantly modeling for us how we should live and who we should be. He's not just saying, listen to what I say. He's simultaneously always saying, watch who I am. We see this throughout the Bible. 
Very early on in the Bible, some of the earliest instructions that we see God giving was when he was setting down the law for his people Israel. And you know, it's called the law, but there are 613 laws in the law. 613 things to follow. See, he really likes instruction. But 613 things to learn and to follow. 613 ways to be holy. But among them, he gives them kind of this one overarching reason behind them all. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2, God tells Israel this. Be holy because, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Here's your overarching guidance. Be holy. Be set apart. Why? Because I am. Because your father is. Be like your dad. In the New Testament, once again, uh, we can look forward and see how uh, the faith has, has changed with Jesus Christ coming and fulfilling the law. But there are still plenty of commandments. There's still plenty of teaching, plenty of instruction to follow. But over all of that, there's yet again a bigger message. There is a God to follow who has come down from heaven and taken on human form. He has become an example for us. And he has walked through this life just like you and me. The New Testament shows us that our, our task now is to turn our eyes on this model, to look at this example that has been set and act accordingly. John 15, 12, Jesus taught, my command is this, love each other. How? As I have loved you. In Colossians 3, 13, We are taught another command, bear with each other, forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive. How? As the Lord forgave you. And we repeatedly see this pattern. Here's some instruction on how to live. For more information, refer to who God is. Refer to the life of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 is a perfect example. It says, Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children. More instructions. Live a life filled with love. How? Following the example of Christ. He loved us. He offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. For God, how does the perfect parent do parenting? Life and teaching always go together. The example we set and the things we require of others, it's consistently a matter of show and tell. In fact, let's take things one step further. Let's just go ahead and say it. Although example and instruction are both important, one of them is more important. Can you guess which one it is? It's your example, it's how you live. Think about it. God can have a whole Bible full of instruction for us. But then if he just says something like, be holy because I am holy, love the way I love, forgive the way I forgive, and God can't back that whole Bible up with who he is, then guess what? Now we have a whole Bible full of reasons why we're not sure why we're following him. A whole Bible full of reasons to be upset with him and to be frustrated with him because he says to follow these things, but we don't know who he is. And he doesn't seem to be following those things or emulating those things. 
We've heard this before. Parents, leaders, there's a phrase that comes up every once in a while. Actions speak louder than words. And as a parent, you've got to watch out. Because which actions speak louder than words? All of them. <laughs> Your kids see it all. Or at least they see a lot more than you think they see. <laughs> I mean, some of us, I am included, are, are not uh, too keen on the idea of getting like an Amazon Echo device for your home, you know? There's just something about, you know, I don't really want to have someone or something always listening to everything in my house. But if you're a parent, you have got a much bigger concern. You've got kids. They see us, they hear us at our best and our worst. They see us in our spare time. They know how much priority we give to things like work or like church or like watching TV. Uh, they know our habits. They see the things that we make important. They see what we're brushing aside. They know how, to, how we talk to others. They know how we talk about others when they're not around. And we shouldn't be naive. They eventually even figure out all those things that we're trying to hide from them. The bad habits, the fights, the struggles, and the places where we're really playing a game of the do as I say, not as I do. In short, our kids have a pretty good shot at seeing who we really are. The good, the bad, and the ugly. And what they see in our actions, what they hear in our speech, what they see in our character, that teaches them more than we know, more than we know. Maybe you've heard this quote, we teach what we know, but we reproduce who we are. We teach what we know, but we reproduce who we are. I'd love to tell you who said it first, but the internet doesn't know. Uh, <laughs> it says at least four different people's names are attached to that quote. Um, I think it's just something true that people have latched onto. It's something I wish that could sink in with any person that's trying to lead another person into a better life. There is just no more important element in that equation than the actual life of the one who is leading. Remember Solomon? The guy's credentials, his knowledge, his potential were off the charts, but his life was awful. He got fired for cause, and everything he had achieved as a king began crumbling within days after his son took over. Fast forward to the days of the church, and there are two major passages of Scripture where, where God lays out and says, here's what I want you to do if you're going to be leading people in my church. We won't go through them completely today. You can look them up. They're in Titus chapter 1 and 1 Timothy chapter 3. But the point is this. Both of these passages that are describing requirements to be a, an elder or a pastor in a church, they have a fairly long list. And yeah, on that list, there's one little item on there about you should be able to teach the Word of God. It's an important thing. But there's a whole bunch more on that list. And you know what the entire rest of that list is about? It is about the leader's life. It starts by saying the leader must live a blameless life, and it goes from there. <laughs> it 
Faithfulness in marriage to one's spouse must be a good parent, must have great character, must be gentle, must be peaceful, must not get drunk, must not be a lover of money, must be respectful and charitable and worthy of respect. What's much more important than knowledge and skill and ability? Life, 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 the life you live. We can teach what we know, and we should. We should. We should work on that. We should make that very important and intentional in our parenting. And we'll be talking a lot about more of that in in the next weeks to come as well. But what we should expect is that we will reproduce who we are. You want your kids to be kind. How kind are you? You want your kids to live wisely. What example are they seeing in you? You want your kids to be generous. You want your kids to serve others. You want your kids to care so much more about things that are other than themselves. Well, what is your life teaching them? You want your kids to follow God, to invest in what's real and true and is actually going to last by the time everything's said and done? What are they seeing you invest your life in? In Luke chapter 6, verses 39 and 40, Jesus addresses this. He gives this illustration. He says, can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into a pit? The student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. You might contextualize that just a little bit today and say, the child is not above the parent, but every child who is fully trained will be like their parent. And so parents, future parents, others who are in the role of teaching or leading others, this is really our starting point. Before we quote unquote parent, we've got to look at our own lives. That is step zero, living a life that we want our kids to imitate. How are we doing? Are we people of high character? Do we make wise choices? Do we have a real growing relationship with our Heavenly Father? Because if we don't, then we can't pass those things on to our kids. Maybe someone else might, but we won't because the blind can't lead the blind. No matter where you're at in life, I think this message can be an intimidating one. I mean, step zero is about your character. It is about your whole life. You you don't get beyond step zero in a sense, right? It's not one you can just power through and complete, you know, live exemplary life, check. Whew, that was tough. No. (laughs) Maybe your life was exemplary last week, but it's got to be exemplary this week. And then it's got to be exemplary again next week and the one after that. And not too long after looking at this, you're going to realize a couple of things are true. First of all, the work is never done. And secondly, every one of us has some part of our lives that we don't want to reproduce in others. We don't want to pass on. We all have areas where we want our kids to do better than we're doing. Some of us just may have more of those than others. And so I thought I'd end us with a little bit of hope. Hope is good. (laughs) Maybe we can even title this last section, Hope for Hypocrites. Because in essence, parents, we've got to be honest with ourselves, right? We have to face this fact. 
Sometimes that ugly word actually applies to us, right? We live one way and we're trying to teach our kids to live another. God has hope for us even then. So let's look at two things and we'll close. First of all, I want you to be encouraged by this. God will work with us when we've figured out that we're broken. God himself, the perfect parent, the only one, the giver of grace, the giver of mercy, the answerer of prayers, he will step into our situations when we have figured out we are broken and we actually need him to make us into who he's called us to be. Listen to Jesus' own words. Mark chapter 2, verse 17, it says, When Jesus heard this, he told them, Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. Again, we can translate that to our context and say, Jesus is not standing by to help all of those perfect parents out there. (laughs) Those people who think they're perfect parents. He knows we're broken. If we can admit it and allow Him to take the lead, then we will see the benefits. In fact, there's a great story in Mark chapter 9 where this happens. A man has brought his son to Jesus for healing. The boy has been afflicted by an evil spirit. The spirit is literally trying to kill him, and so this man is desperate. And he tells Jesus, he says, your disciples tried. They failed. They couldn't drive the demon out. But if you can help, please, please do what you can. And it's a bit funny. I I like Jesus' response. He says to the man, if you can, (laughs) this guy does not realize who he's asking this question. If you can, Jesus says, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Please help me with my unbelief. Please help me overcome it. And Jesus steps in. He steps into this space where a parent isn't everything he's supposed to be, everything he wants to be, but he's a parent who's willing to admit it and give Jesus what he's got. Jesus heals the boy. Jesus drives out the spirit, and you know it. He helps that father overcome his unbelief. And he steps into our brokenness as well when we're willing to admit who we are and our need for him. (coughs) Secondly, under that title, Hope for Hypocrites, be encouraged by this. God has called us to be works in progress, not all-knowing teachers or infallible guides. God has called us to be works in progress, not all-knowing teachers or infallible guides. One of my favorite verses in the Bible talks about this using some mildly confusing language. (laughs) Speaking of Jesus, Hebrews 10, 14 says this, For by one sacrifice, He has made perfect forever, those who are being made holy. I know, I know. At first you might read that and go, huh. But give it time. (laughs) Give it time and it's pretty amazing. It says Jesus, with just one sacrifice, with his death on the cross, he's made a whole bunch of people perfect forever. 
Now, that's, that's a pretty cool term right there. Perfect forever. <laughs> I might have been perfect once, that one time, that one place, that one thing, but this is perfect forever. Jesus made some people perfect forever by dying a sinner's death in their place when he was perfect and they weren't. Well, who? Who gets to be perfect forever? And the answer it gives, those who are works in progress, those who are being made holy, those who are becoming more like God's character. Notice what it doesn't say. It's not those who have achieved a certain amount. It's not those who who knew a certain amount or who got to a certain level of spirituality. Nope. Those who are on the way. Not complete yet. Just works in progress. Learning to live more and more like the example God has given us. You know, when Jesus met people showed them who he was and invited them into what he had planned for them, he made it pretty simple for them. So many times his calling to them was just this, follow me. Parents, leaders, anyone, we can do this. The highest calling on earth, the most valuable thing we could possibly pass on to our children is a life in the process of following Jesus. If that's your life, you're you're being made holy, more like Christ, then you've been made perfect forever and you can pass that model on to your children. And you can teach them with full credibility how vital it is to be a work in progress following Him. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you even more for who you are and the example you set and how to love others and lead them into the best life that you have prepared for them. Help each parent, help each leader here today to realize this truth, God, that our most important influence comes from the way we live our lives. And encourage us again, God, that you want to step into those lives, imperfect and broken though they may be, and help us to become beautiful works in progress by your hand. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.